0: very much i appreciate that well a lot of things have happened since the last time i saw you just want to talk a little bit about that war in the persian gulf big doings in the persian gulf you know my favorite part of that war it's the first war we ever had that was on every channel plus cable and the war got good ratings too didn't it got good ratings And i'm gonna cook up some learning for you specifically on the menu tonight we have some persian Gulf. 1990, 1991, Kuwait, Iraq, Saudi Arabia.
1: Oh, man, this is going to be fun. At 8 a.m. on the 28th of February, 1991,
2: silence descended over the battlefields of Kuwait and southern Iraq. After the coalition halted its stunningly successful 100-hour ground war to liberate Kuwait from Iraqi
0: occupation, initiated
1: almost seven months previously. We like
0: war because we're good at it. You know why we're good at it? Because we get a lot of practice. The Iraqi
1: army, which hadn't fully demobilized, was one of the largest in the world with over one million troops, thousands of tanks, and hundreds of planes. Kuwait's army of a few thousand couldn't put up much resistance, so in two days, the country was under Iraq.
0: This country's only 200 years old, and already we've had 10 major wars. We average a major war in this country every 20 years. So we're good at it. And it's a good thing we are. We're not very good at anything else anymore. Can't build a decent car. Can't make a TV set or a VCR worth a f- Got no steel industry left. Can't get healthcare to our old people. Can't educate our young people. But we can bomb the shit out of your country, all right? And we can bomb the shit out of your
2: country, all right? images of stealth fighters and pinpoint accurate laser-guided missiles became the devastating symbols of the futility of resisting the coalition's awesome combat power. Did the media have anything to do with that? I don't think so. We don't start wars and we don't stop
1: them. We don't have that kind of power. Okay, check, 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 check. Can you hear okay? Yes, I can. So we'll talk half hour or so. Bye. So this podcast called veteran voices the oral history podcast is really dedicated to people who tell veteran stories authors historians painters photographers so we like to have people on who, who uh, tell stories in creative ways so we talk about the telling of your stories your some of your favorite stories at the end i always like to ask for advice from our guests for those out there who may want to write their own stories okay ready
2: ready when you are yes
1: Welcome to another episode of Veteran Voices, the Oral History Podcast. Bob Dvorak is our first journalist on the podcast.
2: Thank you for having me. It's great to be here, but at my age and what I've been through, it's good to be anywhere.
1: <laughs> now, how would you describe yourself? War correspondent? A war journalist?
2: I got my first newspaper job 50 years ago, 10 days out of high school. So that was my life's work, was writing for newspapers as a journalist. And the biggest story I ever covered in those 50 years uh, was being sent to uh, Saudi Arabia in 1990 to cover the coming war against Iraq in uh, Desert Shield, Desert Storm.
1: When you started in journalism, did you ever think that you would be covering war?
2: Never. But I always thought my job as a journalist was to experience things and write about them, to get as close to the subject as I could without injecting myself into the story, uh, at least noticeably, and then being able to write from a point of view where I would know what I was talking about. So I had never really thought that uh, I would go off to cover war. I was a, a national writer for the Associated Press based in New York and national writer means you cover big stories, big events in the United States and I never thought I'd get to go overseas but circumstances came up Uh, My boss came by, he said, I want you to go to cover the war. And outside, I was as calm, as professional as you can be. But inside, I said, yes, go cover a war. This uh, This is something different. This is something you wanted to do. Well, um, in an insane world of journalism, um, the stories are best when the situation is worst. What could be worse than a war? And also, um, in my line of work, some of the biggest journalists, uh, biggest names in journalism uh, have uh, punched their ticket covering war. uh, Hemingway. Cronkite, Ernie Pyle. Um, you cover a war and it gives you a certain, uh, I, I don't know, uh, credibility, uh, uh, credence uh, with your readers. So uh, when he said to go, I, I said, hey, out of town assignment, expense account, I'll be living overseas in a culture I know nothing about. So uh, there was all that newness, a sense of adventure, if you will. And I, I jumped at the chance to go, Yes. Not knowing what I was getting into, but I jumped <laughs> at the chance. Yeah. And
1: how old were you?
2: I was 40 years old. It makes, believe me, it makes all the difference in the world if you're a 40-year-old professional writer or you're a 20-year-old private uh, in the Army for the first time.
1: Yeah, because we hear uh, from a lot of, uh, you know, veterans who were younger— Going off to war—that ah, I was young, I, th- I thought I was invincible. But a forty-year-old—you uh, have a little more sense about you.
2: Oh yes, I, but <laughs> but and I knew I knew what I was getting into. Um, there's a. I, I was working for the AP, the Associated Press. Part of AP history is that uh, in uh, General Custer's expedition to the Little Bighorn, uh, there was a writer with him named Mark Kellogg, who was a correspondent with the Associated Press. No kidding. Never filed a word and uh, was killed along with uh, all the troopers of the 7th Cavalry. No kidding. Yes.
1: Wow, oh, I never knew that.
2: Yes. So that's part of AP lore, and it's also part of uh, the realization that if you're going out to a battlefield onto a war zone, I was not invincible, uh, and I knew uh, the risks and the dangers. But when I went, I was also drawing on an experience from... 18 years earlier when I was a draftee into the United States Army. And the last draft number ever called and the last draft ever held as they transitioned to an all-volunteer force. So I had Army experience, Army training, and an honorable discharge to fall back on.
1: Mm. And what years did you serve? Uh,
2: 1973. And there was no war going on, so you're allowed to uh, finish out your term in a reserve outfit if you could find an opening. So I served until 1979, but I got out as a reservist, yes.
1: When you were sent to the Middle East, did you have a clear understanding of what you would be doing?
2: Absolutely not. <laughs> I just knew. I mean, you know, it's a, it's a, it's a journey of discovery. Um, my job was to get as close to it as I could, and I didn't know what uh, – uh, that would entail at the time, but uh i would uh you know just push it and keep going and uh at the time. The uh, Pentagon and the news organizations, in their infinite wisdom, had uh, decided that uh, there would be so many journalists covering a war they couldn't possibly handle all of them on a battlefield, so they would select certain ones into a pool of reporters that would go out into the field, be assigned to a unit, and whatever they wrote or produced uh, would be sent back to a distribution center, and everybody could share that information. So uh, I would write something from the field and it would come back and people in the Joint Information Bureau would look at it and then use it however they wanted to.
1: Oh, interesting. So a field reporter. Yes. Now I have to just take you back one step. When when you were sent there, the assignment was get as close as you can and just report what you are finding? Or was there a specific agenda to your reporting?
2: You have to know how news organizations work. Okay. You, I,
1: I don't, so tell yeah. me. <laughs> you,
2: could, you could send uh, someone 8,000 miles away from home and put them on the ground and say, uh, go cover the war. And then while you're there, you get a phone call and say, hey, do a story about this or do a story about that. Or how's the mail system working? Or are, are, will these troops lose their edge if they're in the desert for a prolonged amount of time. So you get a little bit of both. Um, I would keep my eyes open and go out on, a uh, say, a day-to-day basis and train with troops in the field, or I just might get a sense of uh, culture in Saudi Arabia because it was a host nation. And let's face it, you know, Saudi Arabia does not have a tourist bureau. They do not welcome outsiders. So this um, media credential that I had was a, a gateway into a different world, a veiled society, if you will. How many people get to meet the king of Saudi Arabia or visit the home of Islam, um, you know, where the prophet, peace be upon him, traveled the sands uh, in the camel caravan centuries before? I always describe it this way, it's a little bit of the Old Testament, it's a little bit of the Koran, it's a little bit of a magic carpet ride, and it's a little bit Star Wars. It's Hollywood.
1: So your press credentials were really a passport of sorts into this land, into this conflict, into the military, our military on the front lines there. Tell us a little bit about what that was like, being with the troops on the front lines.
2: Well, uh, and and during the buildup, I happened to, um, in the course of my job, I spent time with uh, uh, troops from every branch of the service. I trained with the Marine Corps. Uh, I was with the Navy. I did a tailhook landing on the carrier Saratoga and then a catapult-assisted takeoff.
1: That was my old ship.
2: Is that right? Yeah. The Saratoga. Yeah. Uh, you know, the, the captain of the Saratoga is named Joe Mobley, and he was a Vietnam veteran. He spent five and a half years in one of those hell holes of a prison camp. He was shot down. You know, he stayed in because he believed in something bigger than himself. He stayed in and said, well, we're going to make this right. We're not going to repeat the same mistakes. And he took a a carrier and a carrier battle group uh, into the Red Sea. Uh, uh, Just uh, one of those guys you remember. And uh, what's the uh, Saratoga's motto? Uh, Unbeaten Gamecock, undefeated. uh,
1: Invictus Gallius.
2: Yeah unbeaten (laughs) gladiators right Uh, and that's the spirit you had on a ship uh five acres of sovereign u.s territory that can go anywhere in the world where there's water deep enough to take them and it's a uh uh, a floating city that's designed to launch aircraft off the deck so you trained with the marines it with, with the navy uh trained with the army and uh went through the things that the troops went through uh you spend thanksgiving in a foreign land. you spend Christmas away from home uh you miss birthdays, anniversaries. you get a sense of you know just what uh being deployed uh how it taxes the uh young men and women that we send over to, to do these things and uh, you know boy, they missed home and in a in a land like Saudi Arabia, you miss things like uh, you know there's not a single bar, there's not a tavern, there's not a single movie theater. Basically, they were uh, uh, living in a desert, but also living in a cultural desert, because there was nothing there that was familiar to them that you would find back home, other than, say, the donut shops and the Burger Kings and the... Hagen dazs ice cream
1: shops. And what year were you there?
2: 1990. I 1990. got there October 20th, 1990.
1: Now, did you have a like a military minder or a handler or a liaison that sort of guided you through this?
2: Well, we had a uh, military desk where there would be public affairs officers that represented every branch of the service. And you would put your name on a list of, you know, I want to go out in the field and train with... And if there was a certain training exercise scheduled that they could fit you in, the public affairs officer would gather you up along with uh, any number of other reporters interested in doing the same thing and escort you out into the field. Because talking about a place, uh, Saudi Arabia is as big as the United States east of the Mississippi River. Uh, so it's a big place. And if you tried to find something in the middle of the desert where these army camps were or these marine camps were, you get lost in. You, just, uh, you you just would never be able to function. So yes, we had escorts and guides that would uh, take us out into the field.
1: Did you right away find compelling stories that you wanted to share and tell the audience back home?
2: Absolutely. Yes. Uh, You know, the the mere fact of somebody going out and training in the desert, uh, acclimatizing to a foreign environment where it's 120 degrees during the day and uh, you have to drink canteen water, uh, six quarts a day. And uh, the thing that hit me right away was how different the military had become from the time I was in it as a draftee. These were all volunteers. This was the all-volunteer force. It hit me right away that the uh, uh, the professionalism, the commitment, and the dedication of these people was uh, way beyond anything I saw after Vietnam when uh, really a demoralizing period of time for the U.S. military.
1: Interesting. And the technology must have changed too.
2: Yeah, they have uh, much... Uh, more efficient ways of uh, getting the job done. And that means killing people. Yeah, the weaponry was uh, incredible. Laser beams and uh, computerization and uh, the uh, lethality of, that, of the weapons that uh, they had developed was, was impressive. How did you get your stories back to the pool? Through deft maneuvering on my part. I got on combat media pool number one. Signed to the U.S. Army. They called my name on a bus. And they said, you're with the 82nd Airborne Division. And I said, oh, this is great. (laughs) These are the guys who go first. These are the guys who jump out of planes. So I was at headquarters. Uh, the uh, the night the bombing started. Then uh, the next day, I got hooked up with a, uh, a brigade, second brigade, three uh, hundred twenty fifth Airborne Infantry Regiment, that I was going to go through the war with. These particular guys happened to draw the original line in the sand in August of nineteen ninety. So they had been there, for, and boy, they were like salty. They were ready to go, and. Uh, I had a, um, uh, computers don't work in the desert. One, there's not enough battery space. Two, they don't take well to sand. So I had a manual portable typewriter, and I called it my combat Olivetti. And I would type up stories on a sheet of paper hand them to a sensor to check for operational security because I had promised to abide by operational security. They would check it, put it in a pouch. They'd put a pouch into a Humvee and drive it to an air base, then fly it back to the media information center. And uh, I found out after the war that the average amount of time for a story to come back from the front was three days, which was the average in the American Civil War. Wow. <laughs> And it things happened a lot faster in this particular war. So um that was my link to the world was my portable manual typewriter, just like Ernie Pyle. And uh, on the other end, the only thing I had to stay in touch with uh, current events was a uh, shortwave radio that picked up uh, BBC broadcasts on the hour. So we'd listen to the news as often as we could and we'd be out there, uh, you know, a, a soldier's point of view is what he can see from his own foxhole. So the whole rest of the universe does not exist. And for good reason. All you're focused on is what's in front of you and around you. Um, so and uh, it's uh, it's easy to uh, become disconnected from everything else, especially out in the desert, because there's this magnificent desolation, and you feel like you're the, a grain of sand in this, uh, uh, they called it the sandbox. They called it lots of names, but one of them was the sandbox. That was their favorite, favorite name for it.
1: Did you feel the sort of um, breath of censorship down your neck when you were reporting?
2: It's common sense, right? You don't write anything that's going to get any of them Uh, put them in harm's way or get them killed or get yourself killed. So uh, yeah, you can't say where you are and what you're doing and what you're going to be doing next, but but you can still convey a sense of what's going through a soldier's mind and the day-to-day. The only time I got censored was by (laughs) was by a chaplain because I wrote about Sunday religious services after the bombing had started and before we moved up to a tactical assembly area, and uh, one of the general orders in the army was uh, no chaplains were allowed to give on the record interviews to journalists as uh, uh, to uh, abide by Saudi sensibilities because they only recognize one religion, which is Islam. But if they practice your own religion inside your tent, as it were, uh, they didn't have any problem with that, just as long as you didn't prophesize it. So the only time. I got censored was, was writing about a relig- about Sunday mass, uh, Sunday church services.
1: How interesting.
2: Yes. <laughs> and you learn, I mean, you learn to what you can get, what you can put in the story and what's going to be, uh, there's a lot of self-censorship that goes into that. But I, I did not have any problem trying to pass military secrets into uh, any of my stories. It just wasn't going to happen.
1: And what was the attitude of the soldiers around you with this, you know, press guy here? Did you get a sense that you were in the way, or were they welcoming, accepting, helping?
2: They uh, accept you the way they accept getting up at five thirty in the morning. Um, I remember when I when I joined this particular brigade, this unit, and the colonel gave me my airborne, eighty second airborne patches, and uh, I was sleeping in a warehouse of seven hundred paratroopers who had just gotten the word they're going north and they're going to get into it. Okay. And uh, you get some quizzical looks like, who's this uh, pogue uh, typing stories up on his cot? And um, it's happened five or six times, so it's more than apocryphal. And the guy would say, um, he said, let me ask you something. Did you volunteer to do this or did they order you? And he said, well, they asked me to come, but it's the biggest story in the world, so I wouldn't have missed it for anything. Okay, um, are you getting any extra money to be here? No, no, but uh, they did. My company did double the indemnity on my life insurance policy. Where's your weapon? It's well under the Geneva Conventions. I'm a civilian in the company of the military, so I have this ID card that identifies me as such. I have a portable typewriter and these notebooks, so uh, you know, I'm not allowed to carry a weapon. If we jump, are you going to jump too? Oh, absolutely. Yeah, I'm supposed to go where you go and do whatever you do. Uh, uh, some, uh, some guys in uh, uh, Cronkite did a, a glider landing in World War II, and some guys in Korea actually did combat jumps. So, so yeah, I go where you go. And they said, okay, let me get this straight. You don't have to be here. You're not getting any extra money. We're going to war, and you don't have a weapon. And if we jump, you're going to jump too? Damn, mister, you're crazy or nuts. <laughs> so, that's one of my favorite stories from, uh, from back then, yeah.
1: And would you have had your typewriter when you jumped?
2: Yes, I had it in a pack. I had, it, uh, I had everything I needed was in a backpack, just like a soldier. But I had a spare backpack with paper, um, the typewriter, and uh, notebooks and pens. You know, I, we, they outfitted us, not with uniforms, but uh, with a Kevlar combat helmet, bulletproof vest, Goggles, gas mask with uh, uh, atropine injectors uh, f- and uh, PB tablets to uh, prevent uh, to keep your mind working uh, in event of a nerve gas attack, and uh, sleeping bag, and uh, you know some other a dog tag and uh, some other essentials. So uh, I look like them and I live like them.
1: Your book now it covers your experience. Yes. Yeah. Let's talk about the book itself. Sure. Uh, well,
2: it, it does a couple of things. It works on a couple of different levels because, I, you know, I'm the son of a World War II veteran. And my father grew up 50 miles south of here on an Appalachian Farm, the youngest of nine kids of a Slovak immigrants. But he joined the Navy in World War II to fight the Japanese after Pearl Harbor. When I was in the, the Navy with the Saratoga and the USS Biddle, Maybe reflect on my father's service. So I went back and reconstructed what he did. Uh, He fought kamikazes from a gun mount. His last port of call was Hiroshima after they dropped the bomb. I was with the army and we're flying around in the helicopters. And, you know, my brother, my oldest brother, was in the air cavalry troop of the 11th Armored Cavalry Regiment of the U.S. Army in Vietnam. He received two Purple Hearts within 10 days and a, a very nightmarish experience, much different than mine. I wrote a chapter about him and what that was like because, uh, you know, one of the themes of this is, uh, uh, you know, I don't know if it was uh, George Santayana who said it or Plato that only the dead know the end of war, but my drill sergeant in basic training said uh, Vietnam was over. He said, don't worry, maggot. He said, wars are like buses. There's always another one coming along. So there was this continuity of uh, we think we get into these and we're going to, uh, uh, this will be it. We're going to take care of it once and for all. It just doesn't work like that. Um, my own personal journey was like a the deeper you get into the desert and the deeper you get into this commitment, uh, the more uh, real it gets. The more you can empathize with the people at the ground level who are involved in these things, and uh, you just get a sense of being swept along in it until that moment of truth comes.
1: You recently had a book signing, a presentation at Soldiers and Sailors' Memorial Hall.
2: What an honor, but it was also humbling. Uh, you know, you know, this is the uh, to be uh, my brother. It has been inducted into Soldiers and Sailors in the Hall of Valor. He was awarded a Distinguished Flying Cross, which was a little odd because he's not a pilot, but that's a long story. And uh, Soldiers and Sailors has been honoring every branch of the service since the Civil War in Pittsburgh. It's like Pittsburgh's Valhalla. The uh, walkway that leads up to Soldiers and Sailors is Matthew Ridgeway Boulevard, one of the combat officers this country ever produced, was once a commanding general of the 82nd Airborne in World War II uh, during the Normandy and Market Garden days, and he's buried in um, Fox Chapel. So I have this connection. Uh, there was, he has his 82nd airborne uh, flag that he flew at his headquarters. And this is also the 100th anniversary of the founding of the 82nd back in World War I as an infantry division. Sergeant Alvin York's old outfit was the 82nd. Um, uh, and that's where they got the name all Americans because somebody noticed that their ranks were filled with people from every state in the 48 states at the time. So the, the hence the name all Americans and the uh, patch, AA.
1: So if I could take you back to the, the soldiers and sailors yeah. event, you said that was humbling.
2: Oh, to be surrounded by all that history and people who have given so much in service to their country. Oh,
1: that's what you were talking yeah. about. Okay. I'm yeah. sorry. I Okay.
2: Yeah. Well, I always, but listen, I, I always feel small when I'm in the presence of veterans, when I'm in the presence of a paratrooper. These people are like bigger than life. What they, what they do, what they're committed to do, what they're trained to do. Uh, I have an undying respect for them. Uh, and let's be honest, respect is just uh, love in plain clothes.
1: Mm, I like that.
2: So I love them like brothers. And there are airborne paratroopers who call me brother. And I think that's the greatest honor I could ever receive in a, my professional life.
1: Drive On, the name of the, your book. How was the reception?
2: Oh, it's been really good, especially what's been most uh, heartening um, and most uh, rewarding on uh, f- for me is that uh, the uh, uh, infantry, the grunts, the guys who went through this war read it and said, hey, you nailed it. That was so real I could feel the cold on my cheek. Uh, you know, those cold desert nights or feel the heat. Uh, I can, I have the grit in my teeth. You, I just can't believe how you captured it so realistically. So, um, you know, that tells me that uh, I did my—that was my job. And two, that— uh, there's no embellishment needed in anything like that uh, you know we, you know there's the Brian Williams story about making stuff up about you know being shot at or everything I didn't have to make anything up I went through this with them and uh, uh, went through some of the same deprivations uh, uh, and suffering that they did while they were out there by by living in the desert so um that was uh, that's been the most heartening thing to me and also that it it's kind of like you know enough time has passed that you can reflect and look back on it and uh and we're still there uh, how did that happen you know because we thought this was maybe the greatest military victory uh that could uh, possibly have occurred and yet uh somehow the politics uh uh gets involved and they keep sending us back but the reception has been heartwarming and you always breathe a sigh of relief you know if you're writing about somebody and it's a very personal story i opened up a, it's part confessional part memoir uh but you never know how it's going to be received by others who were there and say uh, you know, they might say, "Oh, you know, that just goes way off on track." and said, "No, no, no, this was real. This was what it was really like.
1: One of the veterans that we've interviewed wrote a memoir, and he said, uh, for years, he never thought about his own story. It got to him. He sat down, and he didn't when he got up three months later, he had a book written. Mm-hmm. How was the process of writing this book? Was it cathartic? Was it a struggle at moments?
2: Can't be cathartic unless it is a struggle. Uh, It was. uh, uh, I tried to bury it. Oh, you know, I just put it behind me. I had kept all these this material in notebooks, and nobody wanted to hear it when it's over. But I didn't throw it away. I kept it, and it. There was something that gnawed at me this whole time. It's like not a day went by where I didn't think of something that didn't happen over there. So. The only way to make peace with this thing was to sit down and write it from the start. Now, I've made a living. Uh, my craft is keep yourself out of the story. But this was different. This was a book. This was a journal. So I had to tell my story in order to tell their story. So uh, this was a, a, a departure for me in that sense. So It's, it's very difficult to sit down and write it. Um, write it out because you have to go through it all over again. That means you drudge up all of this pain and uh, suffering and, you know, whatever else. But to get it out, it's like uh, taking a 25-pound rock out of your rucksack. It's a a burden is lifted. And it is very, uh, I found it uh, healing and cathartic to be able to just get it out. As imperfect as it might be, um, there it is.
1: What were some highlights of the process? Were there moments that you just said, "Oh, I had forgotten about this story," and oh, I'm just so glad I can, you know, get this out? Were there th- those moments?
2: Yes, there were. I had a general outline of, you know, where I was and what I was doing, but then I'd run across something that would either made me laugh or reminded me of something, uh, you know, offbeat. Uh, you know, in the the course of uh, uh, one time uh, one of the photographers wanted to take a picture of these uh, hubbly bubbly pipes, the hookahs. Uh, It's a water pipe and you smoke a brick of Turkish tobacco. Well, they have a lot. They don't have sports bars, so they have smoke shops. Oh, he took a picture that we decided to get we were going to get a a smoke. And I'm laying on the um, Arabian cushions on a rug and, you know, puffing on this tobacco and he takes a hit that you can't believe. And I said, Dave, take it easy on that stuff. That's Turkish tobacco. That's pretty strong. And he said, this is hash. I'm getting a buzz. I said, no, 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 you're not getting a buzz. That's not hash. They cut our hands off. And this is Saudi Arabia. Well, anyhow, he proceeded to smoke this thing in about 30 seconds and he turned white. Then he turned green and he started to, he was going to throw up. And I said, whatever you do, don't throw up. You'll get us in trouble. I said, take your T-shirt and tie it around your mouth. So he did. (laughs) And as soon as I could get him standing up and get him out of it, People were laughing at us and everything else. Paid for everything. Paid for the damages. Threw him in the car and drove back to uh, base, which was two hours away. Listening to uh, Jimi Hendrix on the uh, on the cassette player. Uh, great. One, one of the great things about Saudi Arabia super super highways i mean six three lanes in each direction divided highways no hills no weather so there's no potholes and there's no speed limits you can do 220 uh, clicks per hour and uh, there's no state police to stop you it's it's wild but, but yeah I, I mean i'll remember uh, a thanksgiving day spent with the marines and uh, Uh, You know, you're eating your turkey in the field on a paper plate in the shade of a Humvee, and the chaplain comes around and... uh uh, they doff their uh, their boonie hats and sing uh, America a cappella and, uh, you know, it'll make you cry, you know, because the further you're away from home, the more you appreciate the things we have in this country. And then on uh, uh, Christmas Eve, there was a uh, 82nd Airborne went on a five-mile run. They called it a jingle bell jog. It was their duty day, but they had Santa Claus hanging out gifts out of a hefty trash bag, you know, razors, socks yo-yos, you know, everybody got something, so they didn't feel left out, and uh, to see these guys mark Christmas in a foreign land that doesn't, that recognizes Jesus as a prophet, but not as a religious figure, Uh, and to, uh, you get away from all the trappings, the commercialism of Christmas, and uh, you find out uh, what Christmas really means to people inside, found that uh, to, to be moving. Um, and, and I could tell you any number of stories about uh, personal interactions and uh, what people were thinking and what they were going through as they prepared for what is just let's face it a pretty grim business they're going to war sure that's that's
1: a grim business yeah yeah, yeah. and where can people find your book
2: there are several ways it's on the Barnes and noble website the Amazon website or if you uh, go to a my Facebook page, Drive On, the, the links are there. Or if you email me, uh, I'll uh, make sure you get an autographed copy and, uh, uh, you know, with uh, with the shipping and the state sales tax and everything. Yeah. So,
1: you want to go ahead and put your email out? Yeah.
2: B Dvorak, Dvorchak, D V O R C H A K. It looks like in the army, he called
1: me alphabet. So, it's B Dvorchak at MSN.com. I always like to ask my guests for advice. For those in our audience who have veterans in their families or veterans in their communities, and they know that there's a story there and they want to capture that story. Now, you're an accomplished journalist, writer, author. From your perspective and your experience, what advice would you give someone who wants to tell a veteran story?
2: The frustration is in trying to tell it all at once. If you could tweet it out in 140 characters, that would be easy and you'd be done with it. Uh, but, but you can't because it takes time to uh, lay the foundation in the background. So it's real simple. Start in the beginning, go through the middle, and finish at the end. It's the beginning and the middle uh, and the end. Um, and especially with a, um, a war story, a veteran story, people are different before they go over and when they come back. So try to explain what the person was before military service or going into military service, what they went through and how that changed them. So there is a, you know, when you think of the basic concepts of literature, I was a literature major, you know, themes that recur in in, in any work, man versus nature, man versus the environment, Man versus man, conflict, men at war trying to kill each other, and man versus himself. Well, all those things get wrapped up in that one neat little package because anybody that goes over uh, is fighting uh, uh, an environment, fighting a foe, and uh, fighting themselves all at the same time. You know, don't get too fancy. Don't start to think, uh, you know, we're not all Hemingway or, uh, or Ernie Pyle or Shakespeare or Homer or Aeschylus or any of those people. Uh, take it chronologically. Just, you know, instead of trying to flash back and forth, just take it in steps. And it's, it, it, it progresses. It moves. It's a, you know, a doorway into a different world. So describe what that world is and what it meant.
1: That's great advice. That's probably the most detailed literary Listen, advice. I, I learned ever. the hard way.
2: Uh, <laughs> there were times where I would sit there and say, "You, what are you doing? You, how did you ever be so stupid enough to do something? Think you could write?" And it's uh, it's it's frustrating. It's uh, good writing is easy. Uh, you sit down at the keyboard, open a vein, and then you bleed all over the keys. It's uh, and and the human mind. The human mind is a wonderful organ. Uh, It starts to work before you're born and doesn't stop till you sit down and try to write a book.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Well, that's a great note to end on. Bob, thank you so much for being on the podcast today. I think that our audience will appreciate your story, your advice, of course. Personally, I like the story about the typewriter. That's a a favorite of mine. I I just can't imagine. I still have it, you know.
2: You do? Yeah, yeah, I kept it. I saved all kinds of stuff from there. In one... (sighs) Souvenir memento that I did keep. I got a, a jar of dirt from Iraq and I put it in a and it's a, uh, a jar of instant coffee that has Arabic writing on it uh, just to prove that I was there. And if you see a movie like Saving Private Ryan, Sergeant scoops up dirt on Normandy Beach and it goes with his North Africa and Sicily jars to prove he was there. It's, I don't know, the, because part of you stays there. Part of over there comes home with you. It's uh, it's the way it works. Great. Thanks, Bob. The worst feeling a writer has is that nobody's going to care about what they're putting down. Thank you for caring.